I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Christoph Tice. Christoph is an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Immunology, where his lab is interested in looking at and understanding how the environment impacts human physiology. So they investigate how sensory mechanisms of the body react to changes in environmental conditions, and they look a lot at the intestinal microbiome, the immune system, and the nervous system, and how these systems of the body act as perceptive entities for our organism, for the, the whole body, and how it sort of reacts to what's in the environment, and how that impacts things like health and how our physiology is actually working. And so I talked to Christoph about a bunch of very interesting and exciting topics that intersect in really cool ways. We talked about, you know, sensation and what it is and how it's not just limited to the nervous system and to the information we get from our eyes and our ears and so forth, uh, but the immune system and the GI system actually sense elements in the environment in really interesting ways. And there's a lot of crosstalk between these systems in terms of how the body uh, responds to and integrates all of this information in order to determine how everything should be working. We talked about um, xenobiotics, substances foreign to the body, such as antibiotics, and how these impact things like the microbiome. We talked about how the use of antibiotics or depletion of the microbiome, one way or another, can actually have really interesting and profound behavioral effects for animals. So mice who have their microbiomes depleted actually perform much worse in terms of exercise, how much exercise they can do and how much exercise they're willing to do. And there's some really interesting connections between certain microbes in the microbiome that produce certain compounds, such as endocannabinoid-like compounds, that actually are sensed in the gut, but travel all the way up to the brain in terms of the information they convey to alter animals' motivational states through systems in the brain that utilize dopamine and things like this. And so we talked about how all these things are connected, how the brain integrates signals that are sensed all the way down in the gut, the types of molecules involved, and how the microbiome is actually uh, a key component when it comes to producing certain metabolites that are sensed by the body that influence everything from the basic physiology of how we digest our food all the way up to our motivation to actually go out in the world and act within it in the form of, of exercise or exploration. So if you're interested in the microbiome, if you're interested in health and wellness as it relates to that and digestion, if you're interested in how the immune system interfaces with the nervous system and the microbiome and how cannabinoid-like compounds are involved in mediating that communication, this is a really interesting episode for you. We also got into some practical advice around um, eating habits and circadian rhythms and probiotics versus prebiotics and stuff, especially towards the end. So this is a really information-dense episode, and I had a lot of fun talking to Christoph. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing on Mind and Matter, please like, share, and subscribe. Be sure to check out mindandmatter.substack.com and subscribe to my free weekly newsletter. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix 
mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure. And vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Christoph Dice. professor at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and my lab is interested in finding commonalities among the four major uh, types of human diseases um, which are cancer, neurodegeneration, metabolic disease in the broad sense and inflammatory disease in the broad sense and they collectively um, affect the large majority of um, individuals living on the planet at some point during their lifespan. And what, what we find interesting about all of these diseases is that they it's it's not um, very intuitive how they developed. They're, it's not clear what the evolutionarily beneficial counterpart is to some of them. Um, so we don't always um, rationalize very well at this at this state of our understanding how these diseases developed. Um, so usually what we what we have as explanations is uh, one of two options. One is that these are diseases of aging. Um, so they just come up uh, the longer we live. Um, and are basically byproducts of of um, life and our normal uh, functions um, as we live, um, because you know waste products accumulate um, and don't get cleared very efficiently, or other things happen in our body, um, organ functions deteriorate, and that's why we get these diseases. Mm-hmm. And the other very common hypothesis is that these are diseases of uh, environmental mismatch. And what we mean by this is that the human body has evolved in an environment that is unlike the one we currently have in the modern world. And as a result of this mismatch, our body is not prepared for the environmental factors um, that we currently experience and that some of these environmental factors um, predispose us to these various common diseases, um, including what we eat in our diet, how much we exercise or or don't exercise, um, the kind of xenobiotics that enter our body, you know, whether we smoke or not, whether we drink alcohol or not, how much we sleep or don't sleep, and, and these kind of uh, lifestyle habits that that we know predispose us to these different diseases. So these are the uh, main areas of study in my lab is, uh, on the one hand, how aging um, is a predisposing factor for these diseases, and on the other hand, how, on a mechanistic level, these various uh, environmental and lifestyle factors impact the development of human disease. I see. So, so um let me try and unpack that. So if we think about some, let's just pick um, a neurodegenerative disease that usually comes late in life, say like Alzheimer's disease. You know, people tend to get that um, when they're elderly. Um, there are exceptions, but but it's uh, something that shows up later in life. So one way, I, I suppose one could think about that disease is, ah, 
well, we're living much longer than our hunter-gatherer ancestors did. And so maybe the reason we're seeing more of a disease like that late in life is simply that we're living longer and it's the inevitable byproduct of old age. But another way to think about that, another type of hypothesis you could formulate is it's actually maybe not a disease of old age per se. Perhaps throughout our lives, we're just exposed to environmental factors of various kinds, things in our food, things in the water, you know, and so on and so forth. And those are actually uh, breaking certain aspects of our biology that don't lead to the manifestation of the disease until later in life, but they're in fact caused by a kind of mismatch between the environment we're in and the one that we evolved in. Is that more or less what you're talking about here? That's exactly right. And, and most likely elements of both theories are true. Um, on the one hand, we have evidence that um, you know, age is certainly a major predisposing factor to these diseases, simply by the fact that we, uh, you know, we see the risk for Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases go up as we age. Um, but on the other hand, there is a lot of evidence epidemiologically and experimental um, that there is very, very strong heterogeneity in an individual's risk for developing Alzheimer's disease later in life. Um, so aging by itself is not sufficient to, to account for this. Otherwise, we would all develop these diseases at the same rate. Um, and of course, there are many known environmental factors um, that predispose to the development of Alzheimer's disease, and they might vary from person to person, which then manifests in a different rate um, or risk for developing Alzheimer's later in life. Now, uh, unfortunately, we cannot do the the one experiment that would tell us which of the two theories is true, because we cannot design by definition, we cannot design a non-aging control uh, in the lab. So we cannot have lab animals or human beings um, that are non-aging and would allow us to directly test this hypothesis. So we have to basically deal with a compromise of saying probably both both uh, theories are true in principle. Mm -hmm. And And you mentioned something that I think is interesting and worth dwelling on. You said something about, you know, we don't often understand the evolutionary trade-off, the the beneficial side of uh, the teeter-totter with respect to what predisposes us to diseases. What exactly did you mean by that? What would be an example of, of an evolutionary trade-off there? Yeah, that's right. So in, in some cases, um, we have a pretty good understanding how a specific disease um, came about in evolution, right? The, the most straightforward example um, is infectious disease. Um, so there we have a very clear, what's usually called the evolutionary arms race um, between the human host in this case and, and a microbial species that is basically just undergoing the same evolutionary process and is trying to propagate its own genomes to the next generation. Um, and as this happens, there is a competition between the two species. And as a result of this, there are certain microbes, the, the small minority of, of microbes, I should say, but there are certain microbes that, that make a human host sick. Um, so in this case, in the case of an infectious disease, um, we we know exactly what the evolutionary origin is of a disease. Um, but in the case of, let's say, neurodegeneration or cancer, this is much less straightforward. Because what would the evolutionary benefit be um, of accumulating, um, let's say, products in the brain or accumulating uh, um, cells that, that divide uncontrollably, uncontrollably in the periphery of the body? Um, so there, usually we we resort to these alternative explanations, which is that they are just um, sort of, uh, you know, waste products of normal function, um, or in the case of cancer, mutation accumulation that just happens over the course of our lives. And they ha they happen to lead to these diseases 
that evolution has not selected against, um, potentially because they fall outside of the reproductive period. Um, and, you know, both neurodegeneration and cancer become uh, a major cause of death um, after, the, after the end of the normal reproductive period, which means that evolution did not have, uh, you know, strong uh, selective pressure to, to avoid these diseases from, uh, from uh, developing. But for us as, as uh, um, physicians and scientists, we now face the problem of basically having a, a disease that our body did not naturally evolve to deal with. So now we basically were, were uh, tasked with, the, uh, with uh, the challenge of understanding how these diseases arise in the first place and then how we can leverage um, either external or, or uh, internal um, mechanisms of the body that would help us to fight against these diseases. And I suppose with certain diseases as well, um, it's pretty clear that it's not just or not even largely a function of aging, right? So, for example, with something like Alzheimer's, it's very easy to to think, ah, well, hunter-gatherers, our ancestors, um, the human beings uh, that lived in the environment for so long that evolved, that we evolved in, well, they, they rarely lived to their 70s or 80s or 90s. Um, so... You know, something like Alzheimer's might just be a disease of aging. It's it's natural to think that way. But for something like, say, um, diabetes, we know that we're seeing it more and more prevalent early and earlier in life. So uh, there has to be something about the environment that it doesn't just have to do or doesn't even largely have to do with the aging process. Otherwise, we wouldn't see that kind of pattern with those diseases. Absolutely. And the same is even true for, uh, for certain types of cancer. Um, one... One uh, very prominent example is colorectal cancer, mm. um, where the incidence, we, even though we know that, that the incidence for colorectal cancer is strongly age-dependent, we know that in recent decades, um, the, the, the uh, prevalence of colorectal cancer, especially in young populations, is rising much uh, stronger than in the elderly populations. So here we have an example where most likely both factors are at play. We know that age is still a very strong risk factor for colorectal cancer. And most likely the mechanisms that we just discussed of mutation accumulation across the lifespan hold true in colorectal cancer as well. But at the same time, this doesn't explain why people in their 20s and 30s are now at a much higher risk of developing cancer than they were maybe 50 years ago, maybe 100 years ago. So there must be other factors. And in the case of colorectal cancer, we know that diet is probably a, a major driver. Yeah. Um, so we know that these other factors are, are certainly at play in, in regulating an individual's risk for colorectal cancer development. Yeah, and and that's an interesting point. So you know, if you're seeing this earlier and earlier, and especially if it's something like colon cancer, um, a disease of an organ of the gastrointestinal system, um, it immediately makes you think about the gut in general and diet. And not only is the specific composition of our diet much different today than it was for our hunter-gatherer ancestors, but also the the pattern, the patterns and rhythms of eating were very different, right? We were we were going through you know periods of feasts and famine with a very different temporal pattern, um, you know, back then than we do today, and so it immediately starts to get you thinking about things like uh, like diet and the microbiome, which I know tie into this. So can you start to talk a little bit about, you know, what we've learned about the relationship between, you know, diet composition and the microbiome and how it's impacting diseases of the gut or directly related to the gut? Yeah, absolutely. So everything you just said um, are actually very important uh, control elements of the microbiome. So we know that uh, compared to the hunter-gatherer times, the composition of our diet is vastly different. 
Um, you know, we derive our our diets from different nutrient sources. The level of processing is is dramatically different compared to to that time. Um, but then, as you alluded to, also the time of food intake is very different um, because now we basically have um, access to food from the moment we wake up until the moment we close our eyes, and it's up to ourselves and our individual uh, lifestyles of how we basically, uh, you know divide the food um, into meals over the course of a day. And of course, there is now you know, more than a decade of evidence that um, limiting the time of day in which we eat is actually very strongly uh, beneficial or, or has uh, um, dramatic outcomes in, on, in terms of our health, both metabolic and otherwise, um, which has given rise to, the, to this entire uh, field of study that is looking at that uh, time-restricted eating or, or uh, temporal eating ha habits or, you know, intermittent fasting and so on. So let me try and uh, approach this question from the perspective of the microbiome. So we know that the microbiome um, is very sensitive to the composition of our diet. Um, the composition is probably the major driver of, uh, sorry, the composition of food is probably the, the major driver of the composition of the microbiome. We know this from you know more than a decade now of animal studies, um, human-controlled feeding studies, and and many others. Um, so there is scientifically there is absolutely no doubt that the composition of the diet is is uh, strongly influencing the composition and function of the microbiome. Now, when it comes to uh, the time of food intake, it actually gets very interesting um, because when I was a graduate uh, student in uh, Iran Elinav's lab at the Weizmann Institute in Israel, what we discovered was that the microbiome um, is not, the composition of the microbiome is not stable over the course of a day, but actually undergoes circadian oscillations. Um, so the, the composition and as a consequence, the function of the microbiome um, undergo 24 hour rhythms, which we found are very strongly tied to the time of food intake. So what this basically means is that every time we introduce food into our gastrointestinal tract, um, not only does it lead to nutrient absorption by, by the host cells, by our own gut epithelial cells? But it also triggers uh, cascades of nutrient cross-feeding in the microbiome. And as a result, the microbes that you know, immediately benefit from nutrient sources coming into the GI tract, they will bloom um, at the cost of others. So there is basically uh, you know, a wave of proliferation and potentially cell death going through the microbiome as we eat food. Um, and if we do this in a strictly rhythmic fashion, um, basically introducing food into our gastrointestinal tract the same hours every day, we observe very robust diurnal um, patterns in this uh, microbial abundance and, and uh, uh, contraction in the gastrointestinal tract. And the other important thing that we found is that these microbial rhythms um, are associated with metabolic health. So it seems like having a robust um, oscillation of your gut microbiome is actually beneficial for health. Um, we had shown this in uh, animal studies initially and then in uh, small-scale uh, human validation studies. Um, and then the group of Tierkaller in Munich has done this uh, in very large cohort studies of, I think, over a thousand individuals where they, where they uh, first of all, they, they also saw this rhythmic uh, abundance pattern of, of specific taxonomic members of the microbiome. And more importantly, they suggested that um, microbial rhythms might be uh, an, independent, an independent factor that um, uh, predicts the, the um, propensity of these individuals to develop prediabetes and diabetes later in life. Um, so there seems to be a beneficial function of microbial circadian rhythms, and they 
um, according to our studies, um, are dependent on the time of day of food intake. I see. So even if you're eating the exact same diet with the exact same composition, the temporal pattern with which you consume that diet, if you're having it at a time restricted in a time restricted manner so that you know you, you've got a clear rhythmicity to when you're eating and not eating versus eating the same exact diet, same exact calories and nutrients and everything. But if you're just sort of eating at a steady pace throughout the day, that would have consequences for the composition of your microbiome and what it's doing. And it sounds like in general, it's beneficial to have that clear rhythmicity to your eating pattern rather than sort of a, a constant intake, intake all day. That's absolutely right. So we, we need to think about this as two independent variables. One is the composition of the diet, um, which, as I said, strongly influences the composition of the microbiome and even affects its ability to be rhythmic. But the major driver of rhythmicity, regardless of the composition of the food, is the time of day in which we introduce food into our gastrointestinal tract. And now the, the, the thing we, we don't know yet um, and we're actively working on is whether these, these uh, compositional rhythms, these da daily oscillations in the microbiome um, are actually functional mediators of the beneficial effects of time-restricted eating. Um, as we just discussed before, time-restricted eating is, is now well-known and is widely practiced um, because of its metabolic benefits. And there are so many different versions of it now. There's the um, very popular 8-16 hour uh, rhythms. You know, some, some people do uh, every other day fasting. Um, some people um, do, you know, uh, variations of the same theme of basically introducing food into into the gastrointestinal tract only once a day or twice a day, and then the the hours in which they fast uh, um, differ. Um, but many of them have metabolic benefits. So for us, a, a major research question in the lab is whether um, these the, the metabolic benefits that we derive from having these periods of fasting during the day um, are at least partially mediated by their effect on microbial circadian rhythms. So we can now do experiments in which we specifically manipulate microbial circadian rhythms and we see whether the beneficial effects of um, time-restricted feeding would still be present or if we lose some of these beneficial effects um, because of their their impact on the microbiome. I see. And, you know, intuitively, at least for me, you know, I would expect, expect there to be large effects here because even though microbes don't have brains and they don't have to sleep in the way that we do, um, they do have natural circadian rhythms, right? They have to have periods of behavioral quiescence or rest and periods of high activity just because, right, like sort of intrinsically cells, whether it's the cells of our body or the, you know, the cells of a, a single-celled bacteria, um, they have to go through those, change, those, those changes between quiescence and activity because all of the different complicated systems within the cell can't all operate simultaneously efficiently. They have to kind of go on and off to let each other work. Is that more or less how we can think about it? Yeah, this is a great point. This is actually um, when when the field of uh, both prokaryotic and eukaryotic circadian rhythms started, um, this was probably one of the major conceptual advances that was made that um, the circadian, the, the role of the circadian clock, both in prokaryotes and in eukaryotes, is probably to partition um, energy homeostasis over the course of a day. Um, just as you just said, um, not all the metabolic processes of a cell can be active at the same time, and it would also be highly wasteful in terms of uh, energy metabolism of a cell. So basically what the circadian clock does is it... Um, 
it synchronizes the activity of each individual cell and you know aggregations of cells that form tissues and organs to environmental rhythms that are dictated by the rotation of our planet on its earth and and as a consequence you know the exposure to sunlight the exposure to nutrients the exposure to many other environmental factors that's, that that uh, fluctuate in a 24 hour rhythm um what's what's really interesting here is that the way this has been solved evolutionarily um is is not by very quickly adjusting physiology to the environment because you could imagine theoretically that a clock works in a way that you have very good sensors for environmental factors and then when you see sunlight comes you immediately adjust the physiology of the cell um, but the way it evolved is through an anticipatory mechanism um, which is basically designed by um, at least in in the eukaryotic clock is designed by uh, a set of transcription factors that co-regulate each other in a 24-hour cycle. So even if um, if we assume that environmental fluctuations would stop for a day, um, if the sun would not rise for whatever reason, or the sunlight is blocked by something, or, or other environmental factors uh, cease to oscillate um, for a day or multiple days, the circadian clock still keeps ticking inside our body. And that's because the these uh, transcription factors, they co-regulate each other in a 24-hour uh, rhythm and completely uh, autonomously continue these cycles um, of co-regulating each other and also regulating a very large set of uh, genes that are downstream to these, uh, to these trans major clock uh, transcription factors. So the transcriptome of our cell um, will always be rhythmic and will continue be to be rhythmic even in the absence of outside cues for at least a couple of days. And then the second uh, clever invention in terms of... Uh, the evolutionary development of the system is that the system is not only autonomous, but it's entrainable to the environment. So basically, if you take a cell or a tissue or a, or an entire organism um, and you move them to the other side of the world, which we do all the time by by flying across time zones, um, you know that we can we can adjust ourselves to the new time zone, right? We do experience jet lag because the clock is autonomous and it takes it a while to to be adjusted to the new time zone, but it does adjust eventually. Um, so the, we, we call this uh, the entrainability of the system. So we basically, we know that there are outside cues. Um, light is a very strong entrainer, um, but we know also food is a very strong entrainer. Um, that basically these environmental systems, um, environmental factors, they can uh, influence the, the rhythms of the circadian clock. And it was known for decades already that, that light is a very strong signal and the diet is a very strong signal um, in training peripheral clocks. And what we added to this equation with our work is that the microbiome is essentially also entrainable, um, even though it doesn't have the same, um, you know, set of transcription factors that that uh, mediate this. But it's basically a, a whole ecosystem fluctuation that we described there in terms of uh, circadian oscillations of the microbiome. But even they are uh, entrainable to, for example, food as a as an environmental signal. Mm. Um, just because, as I as I described earlier, when food comes down the GI tract, it basically dictates the rhythm of these microorganisms. Um, and as such, the microbiome basically um, serves as a as another entity of the body that that is rhythmic and can be entrained to food. I see. Yeah, I um, I went to Europe um, a few months ago. And it took me a few days to adjust, not only in terms of my sleep-wake cycle, but also in terms of my uh, GI system. And I suspect, you know, I suspected not only was my diet composition changing, but because I tend to regularly eat in a time-restricted manner um, for for a certain 
uh, chunk of the day for a certain um, a few hours of the day. When I went to Portugal in this case, I was eight hours off my normal rhythm. And uh, one hypothesis I had was that perhaps, you know, even though I was eating in the same basic rhythm each part of the day, because I was in a different time zone, uh, perhaps I was giving my my food and my GI system uh, food to digest my when uh, my microbiome and my GI system food to digest when they were effectively sleeping. And so that was probably throwing things off. Yeah, this is a very interesting point. This is actually interesting in two different ways. Um, first of all, as as uh, you know, being from Germany myself and and working in the U.S., I, I can relate to the to the troubles that come with um, flying back and forth between Europe and the U.S. and and the the time shift that comes with it. And the uh, the thing that I've been asking myself after we we had these discoveries in the lab is whether it might actually be beneficial, at least for uh, short term trips, to continue your eating habits from home. And basically to temporarily uncouple the times of day in which you consume uh, the, the meals that you normally consume from environmental sunlight, basically. It's not always compatible with life because you cannot, uh, you know, have a have a, um, a big meal in the middle of the night, um, in, at least if it's not available. But, but uh, you know, there are some practical restrictions, but at least conceptually, mm-hmm. um, this is what, what we think could be beneficial in terms of keeping your microbiome rhythms going, even if you're in a time zone that that now um, basically produces uh, um, environmental light at a different time of day. The other thing that's very interesting about this is that there is, a, epidemiologically speaking, there is a very strong association between disruption of the circadian clock and conditions like uh, diabetes and obesity. We know this from, uh, for example, from shift workers. Mm. Um, who are at a higher risk of developing diabetes and obesity um, if they engage in in uh, prolonged periods of shift work. So one one hypothesis we have, basically, as you just alluded to, when from your trip to Portugal, um, is that some of this risk might be determined by a mismatch between microbiome rhythms and the times of food intake, because when we have regular microbiome rhythms um, that are entrained by the rhythms of of when we eat. Um, these these uh, microbiome rhythms might help us to digest food in the optimal way, simply because that's what they what they evolved to do. They they evolved to break down um, nutrients um, for the for their own metabolism, basically, and and we benefit from it. But if there is now a um, sudden mismatch, if someone shift goes from a morning shift to a night shift, for example, and they would now consume food when they would normally be asleep, most likely the microbiome is out of sync as well, at least for the first few days until it has a chance to adjust. So we're, we're hypothesizing that some of this mismatch between the time of food intake and these uh, sort of anticipatory microbiome oscillations um, to, to nutrient metabolism, some of this uh, desynchronization might be um, a, a factor that predisposes us to the loss of glycemic control, which is the first step in developing pre-diabetes. I see. Yeah, so a lot of it just boils down to... Um not adhering to behaviors that keep the body that keep the body on a very rhythmic schedule that is ultimately going to be be very much tied to just the daily rhythms of of the physical environment the sun coming up and down that's right that's right and you know again going back to the evolutionary argument that's probably you know for for the large majority of human evolution uh, changing your time zone was was not not uh not an option. No, was not possible and was so it was not a question. 
Um, same for shift work. This is all. These are all very recent uh, inventions in terms of human evolution. So you know, the body, evolutionarily speaking, did not have to deal with this problem. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I know I know that a lot of your work, you know, you can sort of think of it in terms of you're studying sensory systems of the body that are detecting you know, what's present in the environment um, on or in the body. And you know, normally when we think about sensory systems, we think about the nervous system, right? We, our eyes, our ears, our nose, and so forth. Um, but the nervous system isn't the only system of the body that's, that's in the business of sensing things um, outside of us. So can you talk a little bit about sensation and sensory systems in the body besides the nervous system, including things like the gut and the immune system? And sort of just, just conceptually, in what sense... Um, are they sensing things? Right. So the, the reason why we're so interested in these uh, sensory events is basically um, because of what we talked about earlier, where there is uh, um, one of the major hypotheses of uh, the major human disease, underlying the major human disease is this mismatch between environmental factors and and uh, what our body evolved to, to deal with. Um, so all of these environmental factors need to be sensed. Um, and in a way, um, you know, one might argue that that sensation of the environment is the core survival um, skill or the core survival function of the human body. Um, and basically, the, the the way we perceive the environment is uh, um, traditionally called exteroception. It's basically our our ability to, um, you know, sense whatever the human body has evolved to sense in the environment. With specialized sensors, most of them, as you alluded to, are are part of the nervous system, but there are others as well that I'll discuss in just a second. And then to integrate these uh, sensory events, for the most part, in the brain, right? This is actually where the, um, I guess, the namesake of your podcast is coming from the the um, body mind dichotomy. Um, and actually, when when uh, Erwin Schrödinger wrote this uh, very famous. Uh, um, essay on on the body mind duality. I actually think he called it uh, mind and matter. So this is probably exactly the namesake of your podcast. But but when when he wrote this essay, um, he basically started it by saying something like, uh, "The essence of the of the human body is the perception and integration of uh, of environmental signals." So now the the interesting question is how how is this actualized in terms of the anatomy and the the cellular function in the human body? So usually when we when we talk about exteroception in the classical sense, we're talking about um, the classical senses of the human body, like smell and vision and, and touch sensation and auditory sensation and so on. And and this is there's a very stereotypical, very interesting uh, pattern of how this has been actualized. It's always there is a sensory cell, which is always an epithelial cell, not a neuron. Right, it can be a retinal ganglion cell, or it can be a touch-sensitive cell in the skin, and then just underneath it is usually a neuron. So there is a sensing event that happens with a specialized epithelial cell that has very specific receptors for what it's supposed to sense. Can be taste, um, can be um, you know, can be a, a mechanical event like touch. Um, it can be a, a wavelength of light. And then the signal is transduced to the neuron that is underneath it. And the neuron then basically connects the sensory event to the brain. So this seems to be the um, sort of the, the anatomical blueprint or the, the design principle by, this, by which this was actualized. And then historically speaking, there is a second branch of perception, which we call interoception. 
Um, and this is basically opposed to extra reception, which is sensing the outside world. Interception is sensing the inside world. So this is sensing everything that's going on in the body. And then in a similar way, reporting it to the brain. Um, and here it's actually uh, much less clear how this uh, sensing occurs, what the major um, sensory elements are and, and what is being sensed. Um, but we know that at least some of the um, anatomical actualization looks very similar like an extra-reception. For example, in the gut, there are specialized epithelial cells that also have sensory function of um, nutrients in the lumen or you know, um, molecules coming from the microbiome or dietary components that are being sensed. And then at least some of them are able to transduce signals to um, anatomically proximal neuron, which then projects to the brain. So at least some, some uh, of the principles seem to be the same. But now what gets very interesting is that we know that these epithelial cells are not the only things that talk to these sensory neurons, but there are probably other sensory entities in the human body um, because we know that these, these neurons, they can also receive signals from immune cells. So immune cells are basically a second major branch um, uh, or major system in the human body that has evolved to sense things. They also Immune cells also have very stereotypical receptors. Many of them detect microbial molecules, but some of these immune cell receptors detect other molecules. And we may speculate that there are other sensory systems in the human body that we, we don't know exactly um, what they perceive, um, because we don't know the entire range of things that is being sensed in the human body. And we also don't know how they might talk to these sensory neurons that then uh, project to the brain and inform the brain about these sensory events. Um, but, at least, but at least in the broad sense, this is how the human body perceives both, both the outside world and the inside world. I see. And I suppose like uh, on, on the piece of this connected to the immune system, um, when you think about sort of their role in sensation and surveillance and their connection and cooperation with things like sensory neurons, you know, one big advantage uh, that immune cells have over nervous systems in one respect is they can move around. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about that and how it ties into the concept of immune surveillance and, and what that's all about? Yeah, this is extremely interesting. So as you just mentioned, um, most of these sensory systems that I just talked about, they're stationary, right? The epithelial cells um, cannot move within the context of, of their tissue. Um, they're also very frequently renewed. So many, many epithelial cells only um, have a lifespan of a few days. Um, and then, then they're being replaced by, uh, by cells coming from stem cells in the tissue. Neurons cannot move for the most part. They're, they're um, very long on the one hand. On the other hand, they, they don't have the ability to move around the body, but the immune cells do. Immune cells are very mobile and, and actually some of their uh, main function is to um, continuously enter tissues and then go back to the circulation. Then they come back and they basically scan the entire body in a way. They, they come through uh, the lymphatic drainage of tissues. They reach lymph nodes. They reach uh, the spleen, which is the major secondary lymphoid organ in the systemic circulation. Um, so they constantly scan the environment for microbial ligands or for um, for um um, peptide antigens that they recognize um, from our own body and, and uh, foreign foreign peptides that enter the human body. So so we can think about immune cells as um, basically sentinels that scan the entire body um, and then report to specific partner cells if they had a sensory event. Right. Usually they would, um, in the case of T cells, they recognize 
um, antigens presented by antigen presenting cells. <clears throat> so they basically form what in in uh, in analogy to to synapses that are formed between neurons, they form immunological synapses um, with, for example, antigen presenting cells like dendritic cells. Um, and then they, when they recognize their antigen, they get activated and they send signals to their neighboring cells, including the dendritic cells and other cells. Um, now, the interesting question is, and, and there is actually um, literature by now to support is whether um, immune cells like T cells um, or even uh, cells of the innate immune system, like, like macrophages and other myeloid cells, whether they can also talk to neurons directly and basically send signals to neurons that innervate a specific tissue and thereby inform the brain about these uh, immune sensory events in the periphery. It's uh, this is a you know very recent um, area of exploration, both in my lab and in other labs in the field, and and we don't have a very good conceptual framework yet of how to think about this. But we we definitely know that there is a lot of crosstalk between neurons and immune cells. We know that many of them are relevant for inflammatory responses, and we also know that the brain uh, integrates information from from these um, sensory events in the periphery. There was actually, uh, recently there was a very interesting study um, out of uh, Asia Rolls' lab, um, which basically identified an area of the brain in the insular cortex um, that responds to inflammatory events in the GI tract. So what they discovered is that um, neurons get activated in the brain in response to an inflammatory insult in the GI tract. And what was really interesting there is that what they proposed was that these neurons form um, basically the equivalent of a memory engram. So usually when a memory is stored in the brain, um, the way it is stored, conceptually speaking, is by forming an engram of neurons that get co-activated. Um, so this is typically studied in the hippocampus when, the, the, when basically the hippocampus gets activated by a peripheral stimulus, it will form a network of neurons that get co-activated. And then the recall of this network or the recall of this engram produces a memory experience, right? So for example, if I'm now um, producing sound, um, you will hear the sound and your basically your auditory system will um, relay this information to the brain. And in the hippocampus, for example, or in, or in other areas of the brain, there will be a network formed in response to this. And now if, you know, many days from now, um, someone else will clap their hands. The same neurons will get activated, and you said, "Okay, that's what the that's what the guy on the podcast did." It's the same sound. Um, you know, it, it's it's the it's um, basically reactivating the the same engram of neurons. Now, what's really interesting is that um, based on the work I just mentioned from from Asia Rolls's lab, there is the possibility that um, immune sensation events or inflammatory events in the periphery provoke the formation of these engrams in the brain. Because what they showed is that if they selectively reactivate these uh, neurons in the insular cortex that, that got activated by this uh, immune stimulation, they basically produced, just by activating these neurons without the context of any uh, gut perturbation, they produced an inflammatory response in the gut. So possibly what the brain does is not only integrate information from these uh, exteroceptive systems that we just discussed of, uh, you know, vision and sound and, and taste and, and smell and, and touch and so on. But maybe there are memories being formed in response to interoceptive signals as well, the ones that are coming from the body through these sensory neurons. And then when you reactivate them, because you produce the same insult again, now the body and the brain actually potentiates the response 
to this uh, peripheral sensation. So in the case of uh, gut inflammation, if there is reactivation of the same neurons, this might actually produce a stronger inflammatory response um, mm -hmm. the second time around. I see. Um, so it's very early early days in this kind of research, but at least it, mm -hmm. it would suggest sort of a, a merger of this, um, of this concept of extraception and interoception because the body... Uh, the, the you know the body signals all these different mm -hmm. um, signals to the brain, and the brain doesn't necessarily distinguish between where the signal is coming from and is able to form memories even for interoceptive signal. Yeah, it's I mean it's fundamentally the same process, and, and th I mean that would make sense. I mean when we no when we uh, we don't necessarily normally talk talk this way in everyday speech, but you know a memory is really just the brain re-instigating a certain constellation of sensory events f that happened to us before. So, you know, if you remember what happened to you at, at a party that you were at last weekend, you're remembering at least certain aspects of what you saw, what you smelled, what you heard, and your brain is holding on to those sensations in some sense so that they can be, you know, relived even in the absence of that environment being the one that you're in. And I think what you're saying is that the same kind of process seems to be, um, at work in, when it comes to internal sensation, so interoception. So if you've got some inflammatory event in the gut, say, that was caused by some bug getting into your gut down there, uh, the immune system detects that, the ner nervous system eventually detects that. And just it sounds like what you were just describing was a result where, you know, just like we can have a memory engram encoding what happened at the party, including, you know, what we saw and what we heard at the party, we can also have memory engrams that encode a memory of an inflammatory event in one part of the gut. And not only does it encode a memory of that, but perhaps the purpose of that memory is so that the next time the same bug is sensed down there, the uh, inflammatory response can happen quicker and or more strongly. And, and that can only happen if there's a memory in there that sort of prepares prepares uh, the body to do, to do that. Is that more or less what you're saying? That's exactly right. And that now if you think about the, the consequences of this, if this is true, now there are two very important consequences. On the one hand, maybe this is a potential avenue for future treatments, because in certain contexts, like, like gut inflammation or maybe metabolic diseases or maybe other diseases, we don't want this um, exaggerated secondary response, right? Maybe this is a way to um, potentially interfere with the brain's influence on peripheral inflammatory processes um, by inhibiting this, this uh, enhancing secondary effect. The other thing, conceptually speaking, that's, that that uh, might be a very interesting consequence of this theory, um, is that we know, and and uh, I can relate to this personally as a as a father of two young kids, is that usually when when a child learns and and later on when adults learn too, we know that memories are formed more efficiently when they're in the context of multiple sensory events, right? That's usually what we're taught early on. Um, it's much easier to memorize something if you also see it, um, if it comes with a secondary, tertiary um, stimulus, and so on. So maybe what happens in the brain there is engram formation um, is much stronger um, if there are multiple sensory inputs, um, both um, extraceptive inputs and interoceptive inputs. Um, so, so this would mean that um, the, the body's ability to form these engrams and to, to remember things or the brain's ability to form engrams and, and to remember things um, is a function of the the number and quantity of these sensory inputs. Um, <clears throat> and if that's true, of course, that's something that we can leverage in terms of uh, um, optimizing the formation of memories that we want to form 
and maybe suppress the formation of memories that we don't want to form, um, including painful memories and and so on. Interesting. So this is a this is a little bit of uh, you know this is pretty far into speculation territory at this stage. Yeah. So I want to bring it back to. Um the idea of xenobiotics, and I want to talk about antibiotics. But before we talk about the effect of antibiotics on the microbiome and some other stuff, can you just define that term for people, xenobiotics? It's not used that much outside the literature. Yeah, xenobiotics um, is basically a, a term that just refers to um, foreign molecules that enter the body. It's, it's really just a, an umbrella term for um, xenobi means, uh, means foreign. So it's basically a, a you know, a, a term that, that describes these foreign elements in the human body. And these are actually things that we expose ourselves to all the time. Um, you know, people who smoke, um, cigarettes are full of xenobiotics. Antibiotics, as you just mentioned, is an example of xenobiotics. Drugs are examples of xenobiotics that we consume on a daily basis. So, so uh, the human body is typically full of xenobiotics. We just uh, don't often call them this way. And so, um, you know, antibiotics are obviously one of the uh, the crowning jewels of medicine. They've been highly effective at, at doing what we know that they do, which is kill microorganisms. Um, and we also know um, at this point that, that you know, they've probably been overused um, and that can drive the evolution of antibiotic resistance, for example. But the other thing that I think we've come to appreciate, you know, in the last decade or two that we didn't um, deeper into history is that the antibiotics aren't selectively killing just the bad microbes that cause us problems. They're also killing all of the micro, many of the microbiome uh, components, the, the good bacteria that, that we want to be there. And so with respect to the microbiome, if someone's taking a broad spectrum antibiotic, you know, how how depleted will the microbiome become? Is it, you know, 50% of the species going to be uh, in, uh, affected? Is it a hundred percent? How affected will the microbiome be? And what are some of the sort of the major overarching consequences of that depletion? Right. So as you, as you just mentioned it, the, the picture that we usually use in the field is, is, uh, the one that is, uh, um, drawing comparisons between antibiotics usage and, and chemotherapy. Um, in the case of cancer, um, we use chemotherapeutics in order to make the cancer go away. But at the same time, it strongly affects um, healthy cells of the body as well. Um, and, and the same is true for antibiotics. We usually um, use it to target pathogenic bacteria, but at the same time, we affect um, the, you know, the resident commensals as well. And in both cases, I should say that, um, you know, their usage, their usage is, is absolutely beneficial for, the, for human health in general. In the case of chemotherapy, we we need it um, to to uh, you know, eradicate cancer and and to survive um, or at least improve survival in the case of uh, um, tumor growth in the body. And in the case of antibiotics, we need it um, as you just said. It's it's basically probably one of the um, biggest uh, medical achievements of the last hundred years is that we we don't succumb to simple infections anymore because of the availability of antibiotics. So with that being said, um, now you're asking what are, what are the, the consequences um, of strong use and broad spectrum use of antibiotics? It's very hard to quantify how much the microbiome is exactly affected because it very strongly depends on the type of antibiotics you use. Um, for example, um, vancomycin, if you take vancomycin against an infection, it will target gram-positive anaerobes. 
Um, so these are the ones that are most strongly affected. Um, if you take ampicillin for an infection or derivatives of the ampicillin, it will target a completely different um, part of the microbiome. So it's it's very hard to generalize what the effect of antibiotics usage is on the microbiome. But um, it suffices to say that we we know that it's not specific for an individual taxonomic um, unit of bacteria. Um, so we know that that uh, bacteria are more broadly affected. And now the, the question is, what's the consequence of this? And there is actually, there is by now, there's a lot of literature um, on what we, what we might be causing by eradicating beneficial bacterium. One of the very early studies, um, way before the, the microbiome uh, was, was a research field as it is today, um, people have, have uh, um, basically reported on antibiotics usage um, in the U.S. Army. Um, there are some very interesting papers from, you know, as early as the 60s when antibiotics were really just uh, um, getting started in terms of their uh, wide usage. But these papers, um, what, what some of them have done is basically to, to give um, prophylactic antibiotics to soldiers that were enrolled in the Marine, for example. Hmm. Um, and, of course, these studies, they, you know, they, they would be extremely unethical to do from today's uh, perspective, given all the knowledge that we have. But back then, it was thought, if antibiotics just prevent infection, why don't we give them to people prophylactically um, to prevent infection? And actually, these papers, they they say, we haven't prevented infection. Um, because, of course, many of the infections were viral infection, and giving antibiotics would do nothing to prevent a viral infection. But then what, what these papers also report on is, um, usually it's mentioned as a side note. They say, uh, by the way, the the Part of the you know the the part of the soldiers who got um, these antibiotics gained weight, hmm. um, and then you know they report on basically the percentage of, of people who gained weight on antibiotics, and it's actually quite significant. And in a way, that's what's what's done uh, you know still at, in in many parts of the world, and and uh, at least in the U.S., it was uh, there there are now efforts to reduce antibiotics usage, but it's still used widely in livestock. Right, and we see exactly the same effect that the antibiotics usage, which is used to prevent infection, ha- basically causes uh, um, simultaneous weight gain. Ah, and, and, in, in, and the, in that in, case, I guess that might be, uh, even though they didn't probably set out to do it for that reason, they they, they were using it to to control infection rates. Uh, that might be a beneficial side effect in terms of what the goal of of livestock raisers actually is, which is to to fatten up the animals as quickly as possible. Absolutely. So in the in the livestock industry, this was a nice side effect, basically, and and probably maybe not the official motivation, but at least a, a secondary motivation to to keep this going. Um, so now the question is, um, are we seeing some of the same consequences in the broad human population of um, maybe early life antibiotics usage much more than we would have used decades ago? Um, and the answer is probably yes. Um, there is there is a lot of experimental evidence in, for example, in, in lab mice and in other uh, lab animals, um, but there is also increasing epidemiological evidence in humans that antibiotics usage, especially early life antibiotics usage, is uh, predisposing us to uh, the development of diseases later in life, including um, metabolic diseases like like obesity and diabetes, but also um, immune-mediated diseases like allergic diseases and, and, and asthma, for example. Um, so I think by now we can we can safely say that there there has been a pretty dramatic effect on disease propensity in the human population by by this uh, usage of broad spectrum antibiotics. 
Yeah, and there's all sorts of places we can go with this, but it's you know it's very interesting that there's this relationship between weight gain and antibiotic use. Um, and when we think about depleting the microbiome, it's natural to first think about the effects being related to um, digestion and, and what our body's doing with food or our propensity to infection or whether or not sort of bad bacteria populations have room to move in when we kill off the good ones and things like that. But I know that your lab in particular has also looked at behavioral effects and we wouldn't necessarily think of these first, right? I take an antibiotic, I deplete my microbiome, and now my motivation to behave in certain ways is going to be changed. But that does appear to be what you found. So can you explain for people what you guys have been looking at in terms of how antibiotics affect animal behavior? Yeah. So so uh, before I get into our specific study, I'll just um, mention that this is probably one of the most surprising aspects of the microbiome that we wouldn't have predicted um, 10, 15 years ago, um, but we now know that there is a very strong effect of the microbiome on the function of the brain. And going back to our discussion of interoceptive systems, this is most likely um, how these effects are mediated because we know that molecules from the microbiome are being sensed by, by uh, sensory epithelial cells, by immune cells, and by the nervous system. And as we just discussed, these uh, sensory signals are related to the brain so basically by perturbing these peripheral sensing systems um, by microbiome depletion or, or microbiome manipulation will affect the function of the brain. And people have first observed this um, when they study germ-free mice, which are mice that um, are born in sterile isolators and they don't have any microbiome. Um, and they found that these uh, germ-free mice, they have various neurodevelopmental abnormalities. And as a consequence of this, they have altered levels of uh, sociability, um, anxiety, and other um, other aspects of brain function. The, the way we got um, interested in this area was by focusing on exercise. And the reason why we are so interested in exercise is because, um, as I told you in the beginning, we were basically um, interested in identifying commonalities among the major human diseases, including cancer, neurodegeneration, um, metabolic diseases and so on and epidemiologically speaking the the one magic bullet we have currently um, against all of these diseases is exercise um, because there is so much evidence that um, exercise is probably the one um, single most most powerful and also most accessible element in our daily lives that we can use to greatly decrease um, our individual propensity for all of these diseases um, it's actually not completely understood how exercise has all these beneficial effects. This is something we're very interested in, in uh, I, um, finding out in my own lab, but there are many known beneficial effects of exercise um, that protect us from all these, uh, these different diseases. Um, and, and yet, <laughs> even though we know about all these beneficial effects, um, at least on the level of the global population, we are very far away from leveraging these beneficial effects. The, the WHO actually recommends uh, 150 minutes of at least moderate level intensity exercise per week in order to reach these beneficial effects. And I think um, the last time I checked, I think the global average was around 50 minutes um, of at least moderate level intensity exercise a week. Um, so this just goes to show that, that we're very far away from, you know, as a global population, we're not um, leveraging these, these beneficial effects of exercise at all. So the question is why? Why um, 
why is it so hard to uh, to get people to exercise? And of course, you know there are there are many obvious constraints. Um, we're doing things like uh, sitting around and recording podcasts, and and uh, are not exercising in the meantime. Um, but but even you know leaving time constraints aside, um, exercise is very very demanding um, on the human body in terms of um, cardiovascular fitness that needs to um, needs to meet the requirements for exercise, respiratory fitness, um, musculoskeletal fitness, um, and so on. But but also the you know the the state of the brain um, needs to needs to be as such that it gets us up in the morning, early in the morning, and gets us out into the rain if necessary to do a five mile run every day. So so basically, we need to the body needs to meet all these requirements in terms of um, um, different tissues of the body, including the motivational state of the brain um, that need to be re, uh, met in order to to um, um, you know, get these benefits um, from regular exercise. So, so when we started this project, we wanted to identify the bottlenecks. We wanted to to find out um, what needs to be overcome or what needs to be improved in order to leverage the benefit benefit beneficial effects of exercise. And the way we did this, um, and when I say we, it's it's um, um, basically a um, one one very. Uh, a talented PhD student in the lab, Lenka Donalova, and and uh, the, her collaborators in the lab. What what we set out to do is to take a very large cohort of uh, genetically diverse mice. Um, so we wanted to recapitulate some of the genetic diversity in the human population in mice, and as a result of this, um, we had a dramatic variability in exercise performance. So we took these mice and we we basically profile their exercise capacity on running wheels and on treadmills. And we saw that there were massive uh, differences between the individual mice, just like we have in the human population. If you take two random people from the planet and you you put them on a treadmill, of course, their, their performance will be vastly different. And that's what we saw in these mice as well. So now we had an option to basically use this system of these genetically diverse mice and try and identify what limits their ability to exercise. So we looked at various different aspects of their physiology. We looked at their uh, metabolism. Of course, we looked at uh, you know metabolites that swim in their blood. Um, we looked at, into their microbiome. We looked into various aspects of, of their body function. And then we trained a machine learning algorithm to tell us what are the most important features um, that that would predict or determine um, an individual animal's performance on a treadmill or a running wheel. And to our big surprise, we found that the microbiome was a major determinant. So this is basically what got us started into um, trying to identify functionally how the microbiome may influence an animal's uh, um, ability and, and, and uh, um, willingness to exercise. So the microbiome was an important factor here. So you measured uh, the physical exercise capacity of a bunch of mice. Um, you let them run on running wheels and you sort of see how much they run and stuff. Um, many things influence how well they perform and, and how much running they do. And the microbiome is important for that. So then that would suggest that if you gave animals broad spectrum antibiotics to deplete the microbiome, you would also therefore see an impact on their exercise capacity. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's once we had this, um, the finding that um, basically our algorithm predicted certain elements of the microbiome to be important features in, in controlling exercise. Um, 
the question was how can we verify this, right? So one one option would be to do the experiment you just suggested, which is to deplete the microbiome using antibiotics. Um, an alternative is to use germ-free mice, um, which we discussed before, are these mice that, that basically grow up without a microbiome of their own. Um, and we did both of these and we found dramatically reduced exercise performance in the absence of the microbiome. What's actually really interesting here is that if you if if you think about the strong variability we found in these uh, genetically diverse mice, um, when we took these exact same mice and we treated them with antibiotics, the variability in exercise performance was much reduced. Mm. Not only was the overall level of exercise performance reduced, but the spread that we found across the different mice was reduced as well. They all started so doing. Like, did they all start doing as poorly as the poor performance? Poor performers did uh, originally. Yeah, in a way they did. So, so the average level plummeted after we depleted the microbiome. Um, but it it seems like the the microbiome also had a role in basically controlling the phenotypic spread um, of exercise. Um, so once we took out the microbiome, there was very little phenotypic spread left, and it was on the level of the poor performers previously. So, so this suggested to us that um, there must be elements in the microbiome that that drive exercise capacity, and then we performed um, individual inoculation experiments because what a germ-free system allows us to do is we can um, not only reconstitute a mouse's microbiome, but we can also introduce individual species into this germ-free mouse see. and then basically test their function one by one. So you uh, you deplete the microbiome, you get rid of all the bacteria more or less. The animals are performing much much more poorly in terms of exercise, and then you can start adding back an individual bacteria to see if any individual species have um, are are doing most of the work here in terms of where this exercise difference is coming from. Before we get to that, can you just very quickly describe how big of a difference in exercise performance are we talking about here? Are the mice running fifty percent less than they did previously? How what's the magnitude we're talking about? Yeah, that's about the magnitude we observed. We we actually pretty consistently saw that um, both on treadmills and on running wheels, so basically both with uh, endurance exercise and voluntary exercise, um, we see that the performance is only half as good in the absence of the microbiome. So it looks like the magnitude of the contribution of the microbiome to, to exercise performance is about 50%, um, which is pretty dramatic um, given that we know that other systems um, that are known to control exercise performance have a much uh, smaller effect size in terms of um, controlling exercise phenotypes in mice. I see. And then maybe the other thing to mention for people here too is, uh, you know, scientists who study rodents uh, and and pet owners, if you've ever had mice or a rodent or something, uh, it's pretty well known that they enjoy running, um, so to speak. They they choose to run um, quite a bit. And if you provide them with a running wheel, they will spend a, a good chunk of their time on it. And it, it leads to benefits for them in terms of, of weight and, uh, you know, all the different measures of, of sort of psychological fulfillment that you can... Uh, indirectly uh, do in animals. That's right. That's what we observe as well. If you if you provide a mouse with a running wheel in their cage, they will they will love to run there. They uh, um, you know as nocturnal animals, they mostly run at night because they're inactive during the day. Um, but we we have an you know an automated uh, recording system that tells us how many wheel spins they they do, and and many of them run for for many kilometers every night. Okay, so. So they like to run. Um, they're sort of intrinsically motivated to run um, uh, some amount. You deplete the microbiome, and it gets rid of about fifty percent of the running that they do. So it's a very strong effect on how much exercise they engage in. 
And now you're doing the experiment where you're starting to add back in individual bacteria and figure out probably what the individual molecules that might be at work here are. So what, what did you find? So what we found in these uh, reconstitution experiments is that um, several members of the what we call the Lachnospiraceae taxonomic family of, of bacteria, they seem to restore exercise capacity when we give them in isolation. We tried other bacteria that did not have um, such strong effects, including uh, um, E. coli, which is probably uh, known to, to most of your listeners. Um, so E. coli did not have an effect. It's also not a very prominent member of the normal human microbiome, but some of these Lachnospiraceae um, are important members of the microbiome and did have strong effects on exercise capacity. Can you say that name, the name of this uh, type of bacteria again, slowly? Oh, the, it's, it's called, so the family of bacteria is called Lachnospiraceae. Okay. Um, I apologize if my, my German accent uh, leads to pronunciation here. That's right. And, and specifically the, the members, the, the specific species that we found to strongly drive exercise in this uh, context were a, a coprococcus species um, and a eubacterium species. These are just the taxonomic details of um, what we found, but, but both of them um, belong to uh, the family of, of Lachnospiraceae. Now, what I should point out is that um, this, this experimental system is a little bit artificial because basically what we do here is we take individual species, um, like this eubacterium species, for example, we put it into a germ-free mouse and then it will colonize the entire gut of the mouse, um, which is which is not a very physiological system because usually um, these individual species, they constitute only a tiny component mm -hmm. um, of, the, of the natural microbiome. But now we basically allow it to expand because there are no other bacteria there. We'll allow it to expand. And in this system of unnatural expansion, we observe a specific phenotype. On the one hand, this is, um, you know, very stringent in terms of establishing causality because that's the only variable we change. On the other hand, it leads to these um, situations that are probably not representative of uh, the natural system or natural physiology where these um, individual members are, are just a tiny component of the microbiome. Mm -hmm. And so um, in the interest of time, we might skip some details, but what did you guys discover in terms of some of the individual types of molecules that seem to be at work that are either um, coming from these bacteria or related to how they are helping uh, change exercise performance? Right. So, so once we had this discovery of individual species uh, controlling um, exercise performance in mice, the question is, how does it work? Right? How do these um, how do these bacteria influence exercise? And the most straightforward explanation we had is they probably influence the systems of the body that are known to generate um, exercise capacity, such as the muscle system, um, heart, lung, respiratory system, and so on. And we spent a lot of time in this area, and we didn't find any conclusive answer there. So we ended up discovering a pathway that I'll describe in, in detail now, which basically links the production of molecules from these bacteria to the generation of motivation in the brain. So how do we get from, from the lumen of the gastrointestinal tract to, to motivation uh, in the brain? So what we discovered was that um, these, these uh, bacteria, they, um, they, they harbor specific enzymes. And what these enzymes allow them to do is to perform a chemical reaction that produces fatty acid amides. So these are, these are chemicals that are basically, as the name suggests, they're a combination of fatty acid and an amide residue. So then they produce fatty acid amides. And these fatty acid amides, they naturally occur 
in the in the lumen of the GI tract. Um, what these fatty acid amides can do is they can bind to um, a receptor, which is called the endocannabinoid receptor. And you know this is a well-known receptor um, because it it binds to, as the name suggests, it binds to endocannabinoids. The two major endocannabinoids we have in the human body um, are anandamide and 2-AG. These, these are the two probably most potent endogenous ligands for this uh, endocannabinoid receptor. Um, just as an aside here, there are actually two um, endocannabinoid receptors. Um, your audience might be familiar with this already, but they're basically called CB1 and CB2. Um, CB1 is the one that is more widely expressed. CB2 is a little bit more uh, restricted in its expression. Um, but 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 these uh, endocannabinoid receptors, they don't only bind to anandamide and 2-AG, but they bind to many structurally related molecules as well, including the fatty acid amides produced by these gut bacteria. I see. So these bacteria are producing endocannabinoid-like molecules, which are capable of stimulating the endocannabinoid receptors in the brain and, and elsewhere, presumably. Right. So usually we think about um, endocannabinoid perception in the brain because the brain is full of um, endocannabinoid receptors. And of course, um, you know, many of the of the effects of endogenous and exogenous endocannabinoids are mediated by endocannabinoid receptors in the brain. What we found here, and this is very important, is that what's required for the beneficial effects of these microbes on exercise performance is endocannabinoid um, receptor signaling in the peripheral nervous system. Mm. So as we just discussed earlier, there are basically the peripheral nervous system um, uh, includes these sensory neurons that innovates different uh, tissues of the body, including the gastrointestinal tract. And uh, just to take a very small tangent here, there are actually two major um, systems of sensory neurons in the body, um, depending on where their, where their cell body sits. Um, part of these neurons have the cell body in what's called the nodose ganglion. And these are the sensory neurons of the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is probably one of the longest neurons in the in the body. It basically connects with a single neuron. It connects various uh, different tissues of the human body with the brainstem. And the cell bodies of all these neurons sit in the nodus ganglion. So these, these uh, vagal neurons, they express um, endocannabinoid receptors. And then there is a second anatomically completely uh, different set of sensory neurons that have their cell body in the dorsal root ganglion next to the spinal cord. And they actually project onto neurons in the spinal cord, and then the spinal cord neurons relay the information to the brain. And what's interesting is that these spinal sensory neurons, they also express endocannabinoid receptors. So now we have two sensory neurons that innovate, um, two types of sensory neurons that even innovate most tissues of the body, including the GI tract. And what we found is that they also respond, the sensory neurons also respond to these endocannabinoid-like molecules coming from gut bacteria. And the third important aspect here is that um, these sensory neurons, especially the ones of the spinal cord, they are strongly activated by exercise. This is not too surprising because if we, you know, exercise means movement of the body and whenever we, we move part of the body, um, these sensory neurons will detect the movement and as a result, they will get activated. But what these molecules from the microbiome do is they essentially potentiate the activation of these sensory neurons in response to exercise. So what, um, 
So these endocannabinoid-like molecules are being produced by these bacteria. It's having effects on on the vagus nerve, some of these peripheral um, nerve endings that connect um, the gut and various aspects of our organ systems up to the brain. Do we know what these bacteria are eating and metabolizing to produce these compounds? That's a very good question. This is uh, something we're studying right now. We don't have good answers yet. Um, we know that in order to produce these um, these uh, molecules, these fatty acid amide molecules, they need to have the progenitor molecules in the form of, uh, for example, a medium chain uh, fatty acid and an amide residue. Mm-hmm. Where exactly they get it from is something that we don't fully understand yet. Um, but of course, it's something that we're very interested in because it would mean that we might have a dial on how much of these molecules can be produced in the in the gastrointestinal tract. But the other big question is, now that we know that these uh, molecules influence sensory neuron activity, how is this related to the motivation for exercise? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and basically what we found here is that these, um, the activity of these sensory neurons um, affect the levels of dopamine um, in the brain, in an area of the brain called the striatum, um, and especially the... the uh, the amount of dopamine that is released in response to exercise. So the brain is actually really interesting um, when it comes to the response to exercise because exercise will provoke many neurochemical changes in the brain. And one of the very prominent ones, um, in addition to endocannabinoid release, is a strong surge in dopamine that happens um, both in in lab mice and in humans in response to exercise. Um, This is sometimes associated with uh, the runner's high feeling of uh, you know the the pleasure and reward um, that we get from from exercise, um, and actually endocannabinoids play a major role in the runner's high as well because they they're responsible for some of these uh, beneficial feelings and and um, for um, you know for for things like the reduced pain sensitivity that you experience when when you have the runner's high. So dopamine and endocannabinoids are two two major players in in the runner's high sensation. But what's really interesting here is that. When we looked, at least in mice, at dopamine release in the striatum in response to exercise, we found that the depletion of the microbiome or the inhibition of these sensory neurons that detect molecules from the microbiome completely abrogates this dopamine release in the striatum. So we basically need the peripheral input in order to produce this dopamine release in response to exercise. So the the runner's high feeling or the you know the, the pleasure and reward we get from this uh, dopamine surge in the striatum is not brain autonomous, but it actually requires this, this uh, sensory input in the brain. Um, we're not exactly sure yet how this works mechanistically. We know that um, the dopamine degrading enzyme, uh, monamine oxidase, is involved in this because it probably regulates the levels of um, postsynaptic um, abundance of, of dopamine in the striatum. Um, but how these sensory neurons control the, the the expression of this monamine oxidase enzyme is something that uh, we don't know yet. But we definitely know that the microbiome to sensory neuron to brain pathway is required for the regulation of dopamine mm-hmm. in response to exercise. So this is fascinating stuff. You, you didn't actually set out, you, didn't, you guys didn't predict ahead of time that the effect on exercise coming from the microbiome would primarily have to do with the effect, an effect inside of the brain. Um, controlling motivation at that level. 
you probably didn't expect ahead of time that these endocannabinoid-like molecules would be what you would uh, end up focusing on, um, but that is what you found. And there actually is previous literature that you referred to that that actually shows a very strong role for endocannabinoids in controlling the so-called runner's high, which which even apparently mice uh, mice exhibit. Um, and so we've got this interesting connection from the gut all the way up to the motivational centers of the brain that use dopamine among other things, um, connected by things like the vagus nerve and these uh, sensory neurons that are responsible for interoception. And um, one thing it's worth pointing out to people here and related to a question I have is that you know endocannabinoids and, and these related molecules, they, they basically are fats. They're sort of like a version, they're fatty molecules. And so they're probably derived from fatty components of the diet. And you know I'm curious... My prediction would be that the fat composition of the diet um, is plausibly related to how much of this sort of uh, how much of this effect that you would see in an animal, how much motivation to exercise there would be. Uh, perhaps you're doing the experiment already, but are you playing with the the ratios of things like saturated to monounsaturated to polyunsaturated fat to see how this affects uh, everything that you just described? Yeah, that's exactly the types of experiments we're doing right now. We're trying to. Uh... As we discussed earlier, we're trying to understand what exactly um, controls the ability of, of bacteria to produce these uh, signaling molecules and why they would even produce it in the first place. Right? We have some some speculation about um, what the what the natural function of these molecules might be because evolutionarily they they most likely um, have not evolved to control exercise behavior of the host, but there is probably some endogenous function of these molecules, and then they happen to be detected by the host in a way that controls um, dopamine release in, in response to exercise and, and uh, as a consequence, exercise performance. Um, but why the whole pathway exists evolutionarily is something we don't know yet. I see. We, do you have, go, go ahead. Yeah, if, if, if I can speculate for just one moment on, on what, what the function of this pathway might be, we, we have two leading hypotheses here. Um, one of them is... Probably the most straightforward uh, explanation is that um, the reason why an animal would want to sense these molecules in in the in the gut and couple them to the initiation of uh, um, physical activity is because physical activity is best performed when there is sufficient uh, nutritional supply in the GI tract. Right? It doesn't make sense to engage into prolonged periods of physical activity if the nutrient stores are not full. So it might be um, a way for the for the animal to sense. Uh, the state of microbial activity and the state of microbial metabolism in the GI tract and basically indirectly sense uh, the nutritional status of the GI tract and and to see whether it makes sense to initiate uh, prolonged physical activity. Um, the other hypothesis, and this is more of a conceptual one, um, and is is something that was suggested to me by, by uh, my friend and colleague uh, Noah Palm, who is a microbiome researcher at Yale. So, so what he suggested is that there is this theory that... Um, as we briefly discussed earlier, the microbiome might be able to um, expand the phenotypic repertoire that can be observed in a population. Because usually the, the range of phenotypes is determined by the set of genes in a population, right? Mm -hmm. And that's basically what's available for evolution to select on. A possible role for the microbiome, um, mostly conceptual at this stage, not very experimentally proven, but at least conceptually interesting, is that the microbiome might expand this phenotypic range just like we see in the case of exercise, we have a set of uh, genetically determined ranges of exercise performance that these mice will uh, exhibit. And then the microbiome will um, diversify 
this uh, phenotypic range and maybe um, enhance the ability for different uh, selective niches to identify those set of genes that would be most beneficial um, in terms of their ability to adjust to a certain environmental requirement. So, so that's sort of a more speculative mm -hmm. possibility for why this might have evolved, but, but this is another, an alternative explanation for why the microbiome might be an important regulator of exercise capacity. I see. Well, one of the, um, so when I was a graduate student, I studied feeding behavior in mice. And so I often worked with food restricted mice, mice that we gave less food than they, they would have chosen to eat um, in order to keep them lean and, and motivated to, to learn and, and to work for food. And one of the curious observations that's counterintuitive to a lot of people is if you food restrict a mouse, you might naively think, ah, okay, so the mouse is going to lose body fat. Um, it doesn't have as, many, as much energy storage um, because it's not eating as much. And so it might want to conserve energy and therefore move around less. Um, but you basically observe the opposite. Um, if you have a mouse in a cage who's food restricted, not only will they be literally looking around for food, but they run more on those running wheels. And so I wonder if there's an ecological perspective here to, to think about this with, which is that if your fat, basically fat stores get below a certain level and or you are or are not getting uh, certain types of fat in the GI tract, um, the brain has to motivate the animal to actually get out and explore its environment, which, you know, when, when an animal is exploring its environment for food, right, it's not exercise in the sense that, you know, human beings exercise, but it, it is. Um, it has to actually get out and engage with the environment more because if it doesn't do that and it stays where it's at, it's probably going to starve to death. Yes, very, very interesting point. So so we observe the same thing. When we calorically restrict our animals, they, they will voluntarily run more. Um, probably for exactly the reason that you just mentioned, that this is basically a, an evolutionary signal for the mouse to, to go and, and explore to seek food. Um, and as you also mentioned, of course, we cannot think about the exercise in a mouse the same way we think about exercise in humans, um, because most likely locomotion is the or that the reason why the animal engages in locomotion is because it, it has a natural need to do it, including uh, um, trying to find food. And in fact, the, the most commonly used mouse model for anorexia is to, to calorically restrict animals and provide them with uh, a running wheel, in which case the animals will basically um, you know, obsessively exercise and neglect food intake, um, which, which you know, has some some uh, um, aspects that, that can be modeling human anorexia in, in this animal system. So it's kind of counterintuitive, but, but it's, um, it's probably evolutionarily driven by, by what you just mentioned. Now, the interesting question for us is whether these uh, fatty acid amide molecules that we discovered to control some of this uh, pathway, um, whether they increase in fasting animals. So that's something we're now, we're now exploring to see whether the, the levels of these molecules are actually um, uh, basically um, anti-correlating with uh, how many nutrients are coming down the GI tract and whether the, the bacteria will start producing fatty acid amides um, during, during periods of starvation. Um, so in that sense, it could be, it could be that the, the nutritional coupling that I described earlier is actually working the opposite, um, where the, the body has a sensation mechanism for the nutritional status of the gut, but not in order to evaluate how many, how abundant, um, you know, fatty acid molecules are, but how sparse they are, and then respond, uh, basically initiate uh, locomotion and physical activity in response to that. But these are completely open questions that uh, 
that my lab is now exploring. Interesting. And so, um, you know, if um, sort of to fully connect the dots here between the microbiome, the production of these endocannabinoid-like molecules and these changes in motivational centers of the brain, like the striatum that involve dopamine, you know, what's what's the causal chain there um, in terms of the metabolites being produced by the microbes and the motivational effects happening up in the brain? If you, if you selectively get rid of these endocannabinoid-like molecules, does that completely erase the, the motivational impact here? Yeah, so these are experiments that we have done. We've actually um, experimentally blocked the pathway at, at basically essentially every every level that we discovered. So we have uh, inhibited the production of these molecules. We have uh, inhibited um, pharmacologically the sensation of these molecules by by the, the endocannabinoid receptor CB1 in the periphery. We have uh, silenced the sensory neurons that we know are responsible, and we have silenced the dopamine response in the brain. And in each case, we see that um, that exercise performance drops by about 50%. So we think that um, even though the pathway is probably more complicated than we currently think, we think that there is uh, basically a more or less linear connection between the microbiome, the molecules they produce, their sensation in the GI tract, the activity of the sensory neurons, and the dopamine response in the striatum. We can we can uh, not only inhibit each stage of the pathway, but we can selectively activate each stage of the pathway. For example, what we have done is we have taken um, antibiotics-treated mice, um, which we know exercise uh, much less than their conventional uh, counterparts, and we have selectively stimulated the sensory neurons in the periphery, or we have selectively reactivated the dopamine response in the brain. And in each case, um, the mice uh, basically had completely restored running capacity. Hmm. So that means that um, there is nothing intrinsically wrong with antibiotics-treated mice in terms of their exercise capacity, or there's nothing intrinsically wrong with um, mice that are lacking this um, endocannabinoid receptor on sensory neurons. Um, we can always um, recover their exercise capacity if we stimulate uh, dopamine production in the brain, because right. we think that this is most likely the, the most downstream aspect of this pathway. Yeah. So this pathway simply needs to be turned on in those animals. So, so they, they're just lacking a signal that gives them motivation. It's not that they are physically incapacitated in some way. That's exactly right. And that's, that's what we saw when we looked at uh, muscle function in these animals and so on. This, there didn't seem to be a major disturbance in their actual ability to carry out physical activity. It seemed to be um, a problem of dopamine release in the brain that was preventing them from doing it. Interesting. Um, I mean, given given that study and just everything that you study generally, um, how do you how do you feel about like prebiotics and probiotics for for humans? Is that something that that you use? Is that something that can work? Um, you know, because there's a lot of products out there, and you know, you could imagine it could have very large beneficial effects. Um, but also, I know that you know a lot of times the supplements and stuff that actually get productionalized and marketed to people aren't um, actually efficacious in the way that one would hope they are. Yeah, so I think we have to make a distinction here because prebiotics, um, which are basically food elements that that would control the composition of the microbiome, I think they there is a very strong scientific reason to assume that they will be effective. Um, because as we just discussed uh, earlier um, during our conversation, the, the basically the composition of the food is a major driver of what can establish itself in our GI tract. So prebiotics, I think, um, or, or food components are a very 
effective and very accessible way to influence um, our composition of the microbiome. Um, when it comes to probiotics, um, I'm much more hesitant. And um, there are multiple reasons why I'm much more hesitant. Um, on the one hand, uh, we know that probably the evolutionary, evolutionarily most powerful function of the microbiome is to provide colonization resistance, which means that the microbiome has evolved to keep out foreign microbial elements. Basically, when we consume a probiotic, that's what we do, right? We introduce, mm -hmm. we try to introduce a foreign microbial element into the GI tract. And we know empirically it does not work very well. Um, there were actually studies um, done in the lab of my, my PhD mentor, Aran Elinav, um, and many other labs that have looked at um, how well probiotics that we consume orally establish themselves in the GI tract. And the unfortunate answer is they don't establish themselves very well at all. Um, we mostly end up finding them in the toilet, basically. Um, so what this means is that this colonization resistance property of the microbiome is very powerful in, in the context of pathogenic infection, but it's also very powerful in the context of probiotics. So we need to take this with a grain of salt. And um, of course, most, pro most probiotics are offered as food supplements are not FDA approved. So they mm -hmm. haven't undergone the same rigorous uh, study that, that we would um, otherwise expect from, from uh, FDA approved drugs. Um, so probiotics might be useful in certain contexts, but I think um, I cannot, at least from the scientific perspective, I cannot support uh, unrestricted usage of probiotics across the board. I see. So what I'm taking from what you just said is that probiotics are probably typically not going to be an effective way to change the composition of your microbiome, at least not in the gut. And the best way to do that, or a effective way to do that, is actually just to change the composition of your diet and or the pattern of eating that you're adhering to. That's exactly right. I think from you know from the first twenty years now or so of microbiome research, um, in the modern era of microbiome research, that's that's probably a major conclusion that we can draw that can be generalized. That if you want to change the composition of your microbiome, diet is the way to go. There might be certain um, disease context or certain other context in which probiotics are very powerful, but it's probably not um, the most generous solution. Mm -hmm. And um, again, I want to ask you another question about yourself, given what you study and everything that you know. Um, when, do you, when do you eat? Do you do time-restricted feeding? Is that something that you think is it going to be effective for most people? Um, and how how easy is it to do? So I think that the easiest and most accessible um, version of time-restricted eating is uh, basically what's called intermittent fasting um, because it doesn't limit the amount of calories that you can consume, um, but it just you know limits the hours of the day during which you consume your calories. And something that, that um, most people find um, to be compatible with daily lives is basically to limit the window of... Uh, food consumption to eight hours during the day, which basically means, in simple terms, means uh, skipping either breakfast or dinner, um, but eating two meals a day that are not more than eight hours apart. And we know from animal studies, um, including the ones done in my own lab, that this already has pretty dramatic um, metabolic benefits. Um, it also has various effects on the brain that seem to be beneficial, but there are certainly metabolic benefits. Um, so that's something from... You know, from the scientific perspective, as well as um, anecdotal evidence from my personal life, I can I can definitely uh, recommend to people. Um, of course, in the end, it comes down to people, you know, 
trying out their own protocol and, and seeing what, what works best in terms of their own body. But I think if there was a generalizable scientific solution, I think intermittent fasting is definitely uh, an important component to it. Yeah, um, interesting. Do you have, um, you know, this is just popping into my head, but and we don't have that much time left, but, um, I, you know, across many different animal species, um, a key aspect of diet that's sort of being aimed at, or that's been baked into animal systems by evolution, um, has to do with things like, um, uh, it has to do with basically the, the protein to fat to carb ratios of foods and animals will naturally sort of balance these things in particular ways, um, that are really interesting. And so my question for you is if you take a fasted mouse and you give it, um, is it known if you give it the option of choosing diets with different fat composition, um, is it known what they will spontaneously choose? And, and if so, does that sort of tie into what we think might happen in terms of the connection between the fat composition of the diet and, uh, the whole chain leading up to motivational systems that you described? Yeah, that's a super interesting question. This is uh, this is also a very um, recent field of exploration in my own lab and in the field in general, um, where we're trying to understand what controls, um, you know, the preference of an animal, a human being, or or a mouse, um, for for different types of uh, macronutrients. Um, what's really interesting here is that there is um, so there there are two interesting components that I want to mention. One is that there is something which is called the protein leverage hypothesis. Um, that your your listeners might be familiar with this, but it's basically a concept that that um, hypothesizes that there is something like a rheostat for protein content um, in the body, and that basically the protein content of the diet determines how much we will eat overall. Because there were experiments done um, in primarily in mice, um, where basically mice were exposed to uh, diets with different protein contents. And what was observed is that the mice always ate up to a specific amount of protein consumption. So if, for example, in the high protein content diet, they stopped eating after a certain amount of food. And in the low protein content diet, they ate a lot more. Basically, they, they ate as much as they needed to match the protein content of the high protein content diet. And what this means is that um, low protein consumption um, comes with excess calorie consumption because then the calories come from carbohydrates and fats. And if the animal eats until it meets a certain amount of proteins, then it will have consumed other, uh, you know, other macronutrients um, and is predisposed to, to uh, metabolic disease. So that's one very interesting aspect of it. The other one, which is um, also a very recent um, development scientifically, is we're starting to understand where um, uh, macronutrient preferences are coming from. Because for a long time, we thought um, that it's all mediated by taste, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's basically the first step when when an animal or a human being um, ingests food. We basically immediately, we can tell the composition of the diet by, by how it tastes. And we have taste receptors in the tongue that would uh, tell our brain relatively quickly what the, what the composition of the food might be. And of course, we have warning signals that if the food might be um, contaminated, we don't proceed with ingestion. But, but then the experiments were done on animals um, that were lacking specific taste receptors. And they were given a choice um, between different macronutrients or, for example, between uh, uh, sugar and a non-caloric uh, artificial sweetener, for example. And the animals were still able to tell the two apart, even in the absence of 
um, of uh, the, the taste receptor that would allow them to distinguish between the two. So there must be a mechanism that allows to establish macronutrient preference, um, even in the absence of taste in the tongue. And it looks like where this preference is coming from is again from the gastrointestinal tract and from these uh, specialized epithelial sensory cells that we talked about earlier that sit in the in the epithelial lining of the of the gut lumen and can send some of the same nutrients and will then send a signal to the brain um, which influences um, dopamine release again in the striatum and, and basically uh, the, the preference for different nutrients. So I think there is a lot to be learned um, about the pathways that control um, food preference, but they might end up being very, very powerful in terms of how we can um, potentially thera therapeutically intervene with uh, people's food preference and the consequences for metabolic health. Interesting. Um, well, Christoph, I, uh, we've been talking for almost two hours. Um, we covered a lot of fascinating stuff. I, I think, I think your lab is really doing interesting things. Is there anything else that you want to say, or, or maybe something you want to reiterate from what we discussed to uh, tie it together? No, I just think that the theme that really uh, connects all of what we just discussed is uh, sort of a conceptual merger between exteroception and interoception. I think if um, if there was one thing that uh, people will remember from this conversation is that not only is there uh, sort of the you know a merger of the of the um, mind and matter, a body and brain duality, but there is definitely a merger between the exteroception and interoception um, concepts that have been around for quite a while. Because now we understand that many of these um, of these sensory systems um, re rely on the same anatomical principles, and and maybe in the in the future. Um, we will be able to leverage some of these pathways for much more effective ways to control brain function from the periphery. Because if you think about it, the brain um, is kind of mysterious and, and very inaccessible because it's anatomically secluded from the rest of the body, right? We cannot easily access it with drugs. We cannot easily access it with therapeutics like we can for the rest of the body. But now that we start to understand this, uh, how these sensory systems influence brain function, we can basically approach it in a completely different way. We can we can look at um, influencing brain function as a pharmacological problem from the periphery or a lifestyle problem from the periphery. So I think now we're starting to um, you know enter into an area of scientific research where we um, understand these pathways you know on a very detailed cellular and molecular level. And what we're trying, what our long-term vision is in the lab is to to try and see whether we can um, leverage some of these these uh, principles of post-environment interaction to basically influence brain function from the periphery, which would open a completely new world of how we understand and, and treat the brain um, in terms of the scientific and, and medical perspectives that we have. All right, Dr. Christoph Tice, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.